Well, had things gone differently, I had been getting ready this afternoon to very excitedly and rather anxiously watch England play France in the World Cup final. <laughs> there you go, Debbie knows what I'm talking about. We've got a couple of fellow Brits in the house, they, they feel my pain. Um, but as fate happened, that, that's not what happened. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, I'm not a huge uh, sports fan in general. I'm not a big soccer fan, or, or football as we call it, because you predominantly use your foot with the ball uh, rather than your hand. Um, but that aside, um, I'm not a huge uh, football fan, but something like the World Cup is pretty special. only happens once every four years. And it's always, it's always a, a, a really exciting occasion, because it, it does actually involve the world, unlike the World Series. But, um, gosh, I'm really having a job with you guys this morning, aren't I? Sorry. <laughs> but England did not make it to the finals. But they made it to the semi-finals. And what was interesting was to watch the journey. Brits in general, we're a pretty sceptical bunch of folks. It's part of being British. We're sarcastic, we're sceptical, very polite. And as a result, every World Cup, the British nation are pretty sceptical about the English football team. And this is because they have a long track record of really letting down the nation. But something switched here. And it happened in the game before the quarterfinals. It was the game that got England into the quarterfinals. And it was when they played, I think it was Uruguay. And the game went full time, 90 minutes, and they were drawn. Then he went into extra time. It's another uh, 30 minutes, two 15-minute halves, and the game was still drawn. And then England's worst nightmare came true. They went to penalties. And it's the best out of five penalties. Now, England has a horrible history with penalties. They've never won a penalty shootout in a World Cup competition. So it was kind of the curse. You know, here you had the, you know, um, the curse of the Bambino here with the Red Sox. This was the England squad's curse, going to penalties. My heart dropped when it went to penalties because I was like, it's over. Well, the unthinkable happened. They won on penalties. And all of a sudden, people in England started to believe. They started to think that England might really be able to win the World Cup this year. They've only won it once before, and that was in 1966. And all of a sudden, people started to believe, and they started to chant, it's coming home. It's coming home. Football's coming home. The trophy, the World Cup trophy, is coming home to England. And they went on to the quarterfinals. They beat Sweden. We're thinking, wow, this is really going to happen. We're facing Croatia in the semifinals. Not a particularly great team. England was ranked above them. We're like, we're going to get into the final here. And then, of course, they lost to Croatia, unfortunately, in extra time. Now, I didn't get a chance to watch the games um, just because of my schedule and we didn't have the programming. But what I did do and what I enjoyed doing was going to YouTube and watching the highlights. Okay, so you got the best parts of the game. What was even more fun than that was going to the videos, the YouTube videos, and seeing 
many people have posted videos of the fans' reaction to the goals being scored and to the team winning. So you've got all these shots of different various places in England, either big outdoor open areas with big huge screens or inside pubs, and people are watching the game and their reaction when the, the ball goes into the net was just like, ah! the crowd went absolutely wild. I mean, it was just so heartwarming to watch. But watching those people was amazing because in that moment, there was such excitement, such ecstasy that people just didn't care. They were throwing beer and wine up in the air. It was landing all over everybody. They were pulling their tops off. There was men walking around with big beer guts hanging out. They just didn't care. They were so overjoyed by their team scoring a winning. And right there, you got a picture of what complete reckless abandon looks like. Right in that moment, as their team was winning, there was this sense of, I just don't care what people think. They couldn't care less that they were on national and international TV standing there with their top off, covered in beer or whatever it was. All they cared about in that moment was their team had just scored. And it was really, really fun to watch. But what it did was it highlighted to me this sense of reckless abandonment that comes over us when we're completely wrapped up in something and completely overjoyed and excited by something. That's what we see here this morning with David and the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. David had that same sense of complete reckless abandon as he danced before the Ark. And so I want us to take a look at that this morning um, First of all, I want to give a little bit of, of background to, to the passage we just studied from Second Samuel. And we're told that the ark had been in the house of Obed-Edom for the last three months. That's a great name, isn't it? You know, you know it's very popular to, in churches to, to name your children after a big biblical person. You know, there's lots of Joshua's and Micah's and Michael's and all that. Not too many Obed-Edom's yet. But you want to be original. It's a good name to choose. So it's been in his house for the last three months. So before we, we talk about why that's the case, let's just talk about the Ark of the Covenant for a moment. Okay, it's probably something some of you have heard of before, the Ark of the Covenant. It was, um, you know, Indiana Jones. It's probably what we all think of, right? But um, basically, what was the Ark? Well, it was, a, it was a chest made of acacia wood, and it was uh, covered in gold. It was... Uh, uh, covered with gold, and it had a, a lid on it called the mercy seat, and it had two cherubim on either side, um, and inside it were the the, uh, the the tablets containing the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. And basically, what the Ark was was it was um, it was a symbol of God's presence among His people, and it was the most sacred uh, relic or whatever you want to call it that the Israelites had. It was considered the holiest thing because it really truly represented God's presence. And it was usually, it was carried, there was a couple of poles, uh, loops that went, poles that went through and they would carry it. And it was considered so holy that only um, certain people were allowed to even touch the, the ark. Um, its building and its dimensions, if you're interested, is detailed in uh, the book of Exodus chapter 25. It's actually very interesting, especially if you're a tradesman because you get all the dimensions and everything. But, 
The reason for it being in Obed-Edom's house um, was that David was very fearful of the ark's power. And uh, I referenced Indiana Jones. Remember Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember that movie? Okay. And you remember that scene with the, uh, the German guy at the end and uh, face melt? Yeah. It was like, the main reason your parents wouldn't let, let me watch it when I was a kid. Oh, no, it's, it's very disturbing. And it did freak me out a little bit as a kid. But the funny thing is that's not too far from the truth. When that German guy got his face melted off when he pulled the lid off the ark. Well, if we go back to a little bit earlier in the chapter of Second Samuel, still in chapter 6, but listen to uh, verses 6 and 7. And this is what it says. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. That seems pretty harsh and that's a sermon for another day. But needless to say, David witnessed all that and it spooked him out. And rightfully so. We're talking about the power of God here. And so he was fearful, so decided to leave it with Obed-Edom's household. Three months go by, and David gets word that Obed-Edom and his family have been blessed by keeping the ark with them. And so David decides, you know what, okay, now is the time to bring it back to Jerusalem. He'd recently made Jerusalem his capital of his kingdom. And he was coming off a great, great victory against the Philistines. And so he wanted to bring the ark, as he saw it, into its rightful place, which was in the capital of the kingdom of Israel. And so in verse 14, we're told that they start making the journey to Jerusalem from Obed-Edom's house. And it says, we're told that David was leaping and dancing with all his might. Leaping and dancing with all his might. And there's actually, there's a Hebrew participle in there, which actually means to whirl. So I want you to imagine, he's dancing and he's whirling and giving it everything he's got. I've been practicing that whirl all yesterday morning. How was it? Good? Okay. But David's doing it far more expertly than I am. He's a great whirler. He's in that moment of complete reckless abandon. He's like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. Me and my Lord. Me and my Lord. But not everyone was sharing in the celebration. And this is where we come to Michael. Listen to what verse 16 says again. It says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. So that's very interesting straight away. She's not even at the celebration. She's, she's looking from a palace window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Let's get ahead to verse 20. goes on and says, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael's son, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. It's easy to initially have a, a negative or a bad impression of Michael there, isn't it? 
because she comes across as this bitter person. And it's very interesting that in this narrative, the, the author twice refers to Michael as Saul's daughter, not as David's wife. She was David's wife. But here twice, not once, but twice, the author says, calls Michael Saul's daughter. I believe that's very intentional. I believe it's a way of the writer showing us that she no longer had David's back, that she was no longer functioning as his wife, as somebody who supported him and co-labored with him, but as somebody who was associated with Saul, who was the former king before David. The interesting thing is, though, that Michael didn't always despise David. In fact, at one time, she was deeply in love with him. Um, and David was deeply, loving her, uh, deeply in love with her. In 1 Samuel, we get a little bit of details about their journey. And Michael, basically, she fell in love with David after he beat Goliath. So David was a very young man when Michael fell in love with him. And she was Saul's daughter. Saul was the current king before David became king. And it says that Michael approached Saul and said, I want to marry this man. Now straight away, that, that speaks something about this woman's character. She was a strong, confident woman. Because back in those days, you didn't ask and decide who you were going to marry as a woman. You were told who you were going to marry. So for her to come forth to the king, admittedly her father, but nonetheless the king, and say, he's the man I want to marry, was, was a very powerful statement. This was a powerful, strong woman. Saul said, okay, you can marry him if David brings me the lives of a hundred Philistine men. I want to, he needs to kill a hundred Philistine men to prove his love for you. So what does David do? He doesn't kill a hundred, he kills two hundred to prove his love. He doubles what Saul demanded of him. Now husbands, I'm not putting any pressure on you here, but would you do that for your wife? Mm -hmm. But that's how in love they were. Okay? On top of that, Michael saved David's life when she learned of a plot that Saul had to assassinate David. Saul was growing very jealous of David because he was rising in popularity and fame with the people of Israel because of his, of his prowess on the field. And Saul was jealous of David. So Michael let David know, hey, you're going to be assassinated, and David managed to escape. In the time that David was away, it was a long time, Saul gave Michael to another man to marry him. Eventually, Michael was returned to David as part of a, a, a political negotiation. But you see what had happened? So in that time, something had changed. These two young people who were deeply in love with each other, husband and wife, had changed, something had changed over time. And there's a lesson to be learned here. We, when we're born... We are not actually given to a disposition of bitterness and contempt. Those are learned. 
Those are assumed and acquired through the school of hard knocks and our life experience. But no child is born that way. Life happens, and some of us grow bitter and full of contempt because of, of what life has dealt us. And it's often the bitterness is a natural outworking of what has happened. And, you know, we don't always get choices about what happens to us in life, right? We don't choose whether we get cancer. We don't choose whether we get sick. We don't choose if, if we lose a loved one. We don't. There's so many things that are beyond our control. But what we do have a choice in is about how we handle the hurdles of life. That's the one thing we can control is how we deal with the tragedy and the hurts that come in our life. The funny thing is we're actually born with a childlike wonder and a sense of awe and optimism, with a total lack of shame or regard for what others think of us. You know, think about our little girl Dove. And she's at that, that wonderful age where she's soaking everything in. We took her to the library, Bill Rickle Library, yesterday for the first time. And we took her down to the kids' section. It was the first time. And as she walked in, she just went, oh, oh. There was just pure delight on her face. There's no bitterness or skepticism or contempt there yet. She's an open book. She's a sponge. And on top of that, she doesn't care what other people think about her. She could happily walk around naked. You know how children, they just don't care? Like, yeah, okay. This is comfortable. It's what I do. It's a hot day. Why not? They don't care. They don't care when they're throwing a tantrum, rolling all, all around the floor in public. You know, meantime, we're, we're, we're feeling terribly embarrassed. and uh, You know, the kid doesn't care. They have this childlike wonder and awe about them at, that at some point, Many of us lose, and instead, we, we slowly get it replaced with this kind of, ah, about life. And this is what has happened with Michael. As B.B. King sang, the thrill has gone. You know, you, you can hear it with the way they talk to each other as well. And this, this is one of the things we can observe sometimes in, in toxic marriages, you know, where things go wrong. And we all know there's, there's many reasons why marriages go wrong. But one of the reasons is a breakdown of communication, isn't it? Okay? We stop talking to each other, or when we do talk to each other, we do it in a hurtful way to get a jab in, to stick the knife and twist it. And this is what's happened with David and Michael. Listen in verse 21. David says, and I quote, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. So listen to what David's doing there. This is not all on Michael. David is being just as bitter in his own way because you know what he's saying? He's saying basically, guess what? The Lord chose me over your dad. Your dad's the loser here. I'm the winner. He's twisting the knife in. He knew it would be hurtful and personal to Michael. And I think this is one of the outworkings when when we're not connected to our spouse in the right way, when we're not worshipping together, when we're not uh, praying together, when we spend too much time apart, it's natural that we will disconnect from each other. 
So as a result of this, Michael, had, she'd grown to despise David. That's a strong word, to despise somebody, especially when you once loved them. But nonetheless, David, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about what she thinks. He doesn't care. If I was giving marital counseling, I would say that is not a good thing. <laughs> it's not a good thing if your spouse does not care about what you think. But in the context of this passage, it was a good thing. Because, why was it a good thing? Well, listen to verse 21. David's talking to Michael. And he's just thrown in that hurtful jab. But then he continues. He said, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. So he says, you know what? You think that was bad? Wait for it. I'm going to get even more embarrassing to you. That's how much I love the Lord. That's how much I will worship him. I do not care what you think about etiquette and all that. Forget it. He is more important than what the world thinks and what the world's standards say is proper. What's more important to David is his utter, reckless abandon and devotion to the Lord. And he does it at the expense of looking like a fool and being mocked by those around him. Let's remember something here. He's not just your regular Joe Schmo. He is the king. He's the king. And he's willing to look a complete fool in front of his subjects. Have you ever been in a situation yourself where you're just so overjoyed and so happy about something that you do not care what other people think? I would say at some point in our lives, we've probably all been there at some point, where you're like, I don't care right now, I'm just going to jump up and down, I'm just going to, wait, I don't care. You know, often it might be a sporting event, this seems to, seems to bring it out in us. Okay, but there, there are other, other occasions in life where we have such joy that all etiquette goes out of the window. That, by the way, is complete freedom. When you let go of worrying what other people think about you, and there's a difference, that doesn't mean you're insensitive to what other people think and their feelings, but if you can come to a place where you don't care what other people think about you because you are so secure in your identity in Christ, that is true, true freedom. I hope I'm talking about Brits a little bit. And, um, you know, Brits in general, we're, we're sort of known for being rather reserved, having the stiff upper lip. Yes, we're the originators of keep calm and carry on. Yes. That's the only proper thing to do in the middle of a world war. Keep calm and carry on. Just lost my house, never mind. Keep calm and carry on. It's um, we're very reserved and we, we, we don't like to make a fuss. Okay? We'll leave a meal at a restaurant that we hate and feel is completely inadequate and then turn around and tell the waiter it was delightful. We'll get the worst haircut possible and as they twirl around in the chair, how is it? Oh, it looks great. Yeah. Thank you. We're kind of polite and reserved to a fault. There was no greater display of this, I felt, than... Did any of you get a chance to watch the, uh, the latest royal wedding between Harry and... and um, what's his wife called? Meghan. There we go. I don't know if any of you saw that, or you may have seen some of the, uh, the, the clips of it afterwards, but what was incredible here was that... Um, Michael Curry, 
Episcopal bishop, African-American guy, was, was asked to, to give the sermon. And it was, it was an amazing sermon. He's a, I, I wish I had half his gift as a preacher because the guy is incredibly animated, very passionate, very inspiring. And he gave the sermon. And what, the, the, the most entertaining part of the sermon was seeing the faces and the reactions of the various people in the congregation. Because here's this, this you know, wild, boisterous, passionate American Okay, and the Brits are used to sermons that are, you know, more like, and so our Lord Jesus said. You know, it, it, they're just very, a little bit dry, especially the Church of England, which is, is where this was held. But as the camera panned around, you got some amazing reactions, okay, from the royal family, sort of looks of, of mild embarrassment, to amusement, little smirks. Elton John looked horrified. There was this classic shot of him just going. David Beckham. Actually kind of looked like he was into it, actually, David Beckham did. But there were so many reactions, and most of them were kind of on the embarrassed, this is awkward, when can we get to the reception kind of look. But here's the amazing thing. Michael Curry did not care. He didn't care. He was not at all worried what the Queen of England might think about him. He was not worried at all what the future King of England might think about him. All he cared about in that moment was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love that is found in Jesus and the salvation that is found through Jesus. That's all he cared about. Who gives, who cares about tradition? Life is too short to be wrapped up in tradition when it holds you back and closes in on you. Here's a man who was more in love with Jesus than what people thought about him. Do you know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, 26? I didn't think you did, that's why I'm going to read it to you. He said, whoever, this is Jesus speaking, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So we have it right there. Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed of me in this lifetime, if you're going to downplay me because you're worried about etiquette and what people think about you, then guess what? It works both ways. It's time to loosen up, folks. Okay? It's time to loosen up. This is New England, I realize, okay? As I've said before, I'm from Old England. We're even worse than you guys, okay? But it is time to loosen up. Life is too short. It's time to worship the king with worship that truly reflects his glory. So what are some practicals I can give you here? Well, number one, examine your devotional life. And perhaps I should take a step back, actually, and first ask, do you have a devotional life? Because maybe you don't. Perhaps this is your devotional life. Perhaps Sunday morning is all you do. Okay? That actually is a great start. So I don't want to, I don't want to put down on that because there are plenty of people who don't even do that. So if you're here this morning, first of all, well done. Thank you. 
you're on the right track. But if this is all that you do throughout the week, you are missing on so much of what God has to offer you. So the first thing I would say is establish a regular devotional life. We're called to be in relationship with the one true living God. Relationship does not happen without one-on-one time. Establish a routine. Even if you can only, even if it only begins with five minutes a day, set aside five minutes a day specifically for the Lord. Read some of His Word. Pray to Him. And then gradually you'll find that you can build on five minutes because you'll want to. Get some daily time with the Lord. You have to build that relationship. That was the problem with David and Michael. They'd grown apart. They hadn't spent time together for years. There was no relationship. You won't grow in your faith if you don't have that daily relationship with the Lord. It'll just become stagnant. So the second thing is, if you already have a devotional life or you're establishing one, the second question is, what what does your time of worship look like? Is Is it kind of a little bit dead and routine all the time? There's nothing wrong with routine. But if you're just going through the motions, praying the same prayers, getting bored with reading scripture, mix it up. Okay, loosen up. Let it all hang out. I challenge you. I dare you. Find some time alone this week. Put on a worship song, a favorite hymn, whatever it is, and dance before the Lord. I bet as I said that, a few of you are like, ugh. Because we've gone back to that default. But we just don't do that. That's not proper. David danced before the Lord. He was the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. What makes you think you can't dance before the Lord? What what makes you think that that wouldn't delight the Lord? To whirl, to give thanks. Loosen up, folks. A question I want to ask you, as another point is, is there a part of you that's ashamed or embarrassed or fearful to let others know how much you love the Lord? Are you a little bit worried about what other people will think of you if they find out that you're a Christian? Are you worried you'll be despised like David was? Well, you're in good company, aren't you? You know, they say the best way to get over a fear is to confront that fear. One of the biggest fears that most of us have as followers of Jesus Christ is sharing our faith with somebody. Isn't that ridiculous? It's such an important part of who we are. And yet we're afraid to let others know about the most amazing, special part of our lives. Because we're intimidated by the culture. How do you get over that? Well, I dare you. Share your faith with somebody this week. It's a challenge. It's a dare. And you know, it doesn't, here's the thing. It doesn't have to look like this grand display of the gospel. You need to take somebody aside and say, okay, here we go, the history of redemption. This is why Jesus needed to come. You know, it doesn't have to look like that. It can, okay? But you know what? It could be something as simple as mentioning to a co-worker or a friend that you read something in the Bible that inspired you. It could be something as simple as mentioning the church you go to and how you heard an amazing sermon last Sunday. It could be 
be as simple as just, just saying to somebody, hey, can I pray for you? Or I was praying for such a thing the other day. You never know how those simple little seeds, as I call them, may lead to a deeper, more significant conversation. But we always want to be kingdom-minded in our interactions with folks. You just never know. So in conclusion, I would say this. We're ultimately left with two choices from this story. You can be Michael, or you can be David. It's that simple. Are you going to be the skeptic, the critic, the one who's always mocking and suspicious and cynical? It's very popular these days to be cynical and skeptical of everything. Are you going to be that, or are you going to be David? The one who surrenders in childlike wonder to the awe and power of the Lord and worships him the only way he truly deserves. And that's to worship him with reckless abandon. Let's pray. Father, I I just pray that um, would you loosen something up in us today, Lord? Would something break that says, you know what? It's not about keeping the rules and staying proper and following etiquette. It's about letting it all hang out before you, Lord, to give you the glory that is truly due to you. Lord, I pray is even as we worship with this last song, would there be a new sense of freedom in our hearts that would worship you with reckless abandon. And I pray, Lord, over everybody's devotional life this week and going forth, Lord. Would you speak to people's hearts, Lord? For those who haven't really established one yet, Lord, would you just, would you gently nudge them? Remind them of how much you want to spend time with them. How, how deeply loved they are by you. How, Lord, you, you, you want relationship with them. Would you re-energize and re-invigorate our devotional time with you, Lord? Would you speak to us in that time? Would you answer our prayers? And would you illuminate our hearts and our minds as we study your word? We thank you, Lord. You are so good. You are so worthy of all worship and all glory. And we give thanks through Jesus Christ. Amen.